I'm Alex West. I'm Andrea Subasati, and we're from the Faculty of Horror podcast. And you're tuned in to the Good Trash Media Network. Out of Oklahoma City, you're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. They're talking about you, boy, but you're still the Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Dondercast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we discuss the films that you will never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is called 12 Monkeys, a touching documentary in which Jane Goodall teaches a chimpanzee how to sign. <laughs> or 12 of them? <laughs> or 12 of them. Right. Monkeys! Well, only one of them gets it. That's why it's... Oh, okay. Oh, the sadness. Uh, no, it's not really about that. It's sort of about time travel and Bruce Willis. And uh, we're going to talk more about that here in just a moment. But we have a special guest host today. And so we, as we go around the table make our introductions, um, I want you to do that for us, sir. But I also want you to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, hello, my name is Eric King from the OKC Film Club. Are you also Divergent, friend? <laughs> I, I am indeed. I am indeed. Tell us a little bit about the film club, Eric. Uh, well, it's a social club that's uh, down in the Plaza District in Oklahoma City. Uh, we're at the um, District House, and we hold monthly screenings uh, every Wednesday, first Wednesday. And we show everything from, I don't know, uh, classic films like HUD all the way to, uh, I don't know, uh, exploitation films like uh, Eating Raul. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, I, I caught that pick. You caught that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, one, that, one's a, that one divided the crowd a little bit. But yeah. We appreciate it. We, uh, we try to have a, a family, not family, a friendly environment for film fans. Everyone just come and just talk to each other and just kind of find a, a commune with everyone. And um, I love it, and uh, I'm glad to see several of you showed up. So Yeah, I, I just uh, caught one this last week, and I, you guys have created a nice little uh, small, tight-knit community. I love how you guys actually have like a formal conversation after the film. That's really, really nice. It feels like for people who aren't going to college or aren't on a film podcast, and they really just want to talk more more, more in depth, it's really, really great for that. Yeah, we um, Alex Palmer, uh, he created the OKC Film Club about three years ago, and um, I joined about two years ago, and... It's one of those situations where I was like, well, it's down at the Plaza District. There are probably hipsters there, and they're going to be real judgmental. And then I showed up. It's like, oh, they're just people just like me and just like other film geeks. So, I mean, it's a it's a welcoming environment, uh, and we appreciate people to come out. Uh, all the screenings are free. Uh, we just usually ask, to, because the District House, uh, you know, graciously uh, gives us a, a space, just to maybe buy a beer or two, you know. But uh, if not, just come, show up, uh, enjoy yourselves, so. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, Eric. And I tell you, that mission statement is very closely aligned to our own here at the Good Trash Media Network, where we're all about the conversation uh, about film. So thank you for that. I do have two other voices that need identification as they speak directly to your brain through your ear holes. Uh, Ma'am, who are you? My name's Alexander Bohannon, and I don't really come from outer space. Accurate statement. Thank you very much for that. To my right, sir, who are you? Uh, my name's Caleb Masters, and Dustin, 
The monkey's going to eat that goddamn sandwich himself. (laughs) (laughs) That is right. My name's Dustin Sells, and I'm so glad to be here with you all talking 12 monkeys. Now, we need to warn you, dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And so there will be spoilerific spoilerages. We will find out whether or not the plague is averted or in some way uh, ameliorated at the end of the show. But before we get into that spoiler zone, we're going to have a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema, and then our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Once we get down to business, though, y'all, it's... It is going to be spoiler time, and so I want you to know that and be forewarned. Let's begin, though, with that synopsis. Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, if you would, grace us, please. In a future world devastated by disease, a convict is sent back in time to gather information about the man-made virus that wiped out most of the human population on the planet. Thank you very much for that. That's pretty much what happens. I appreciate that a lot, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Let's talk about Terry Gilliam and what he did with 12 Monkeys and whether we like it or not. I go to you first, Mr. Caleb Masters. What do you have to say? Yeah, 12 Monkeys is uh, one of my favorite, or it was one of my favorite time travel movies. Uh, I watched it in high school, fell in love, and it was when I started to figure out that time travel really is like one of my all-time favorite sci-fi plot devices. So revisiting this was a really fun experience. It's the first time I've seen it in many years. Uh, now, I've got to admit that after watching Brazil for the show a couple of months ago, it really changes how I feel about this movie because I feel like in a lot of ways this is the same film done again with time travel and with Bruce Willis. Not to say that makes it any less interesting or, or well done, but I certainly felt like I was like, hmm, I've seen this before and I might have seen this done better in a different film that I also love. Uh, so it, it really, it, that really changed how much I liked this film and respected, you know, kind of, uh, what this film was get, getting at. Uh, I think, uh, 12 monkeys handles the device really well, even though the resolution I think might be a little bit disorienting or confusing for casual viewers. Uh, but I think it's, uh, the whole idea of, uh, looking at this, uh, sort of, uh, Slaughterhouse Five, unstuck in man, unstuck in time thing is really, really cool and interesting, and hasn't been done a whole lot on the big screen. Uh, the film, I think, is evidence that Bruce Willis has always deserved and still deserves better scripts and direction than he receives in most of the big dumb action movies he's generally been cast in. Uh, and I also think that this is evidence that that Brad Pitt's early career significantly more interesting than his more, more recent works. Uh, but overall, I, I do think this is a, a really solid, well-done movie that's a, a must for time travel fans uh, and a must for Gilliam fans. For everyone else, though, I'd say, I mean, you know, it's one of those films that you're probably going to enjoy watching casually on TV on the Sci-Fi Channel one day. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Eric King, what do you have to say in terms of, review, of uh, a review? Excuse me. Well, it's been about 20 years since I last seen this film, and actually it was back in the theater. Um, I remember loving it. When I first saw it. Now, it's a, I'm a big Terry Gilliam fan. I still am to this day. Uh, my fandom for him has waned just slightly just due to his recent output. I feel like he's just a, a filmmaker that has kind of had too much happen to him in the process of the entire uh, filmmaking mainstream universe. So I kind of consider 12 Monkeys now kind of a minor classic in his filmography because, like, I agree with Caleb, it's... It's like uh, Brazil in a way, but I feel like Brazil handles the themes a lot better. I do love the time travel element of 12 Monkeys. One of my favorite scenes is where uh, he's doing being sent back a second time. They're like, oh, we're going to send you right back to 1996, right on the money. And he ends up right in the mm-hmm. Western Front 
Whoops. in World War One, <laughs> and I just love. And he's naked, and it's just. Uh, I that's to me that's that's classic Gilliam. That to me that's when he shines is when he throws ordinary people into like extraordinary situations and even just completely surreal situations. Now. Um, the film work, I love the the design of the future. I love the sort of, and it was kind of like Brazil adjacent where it's like this technology done the hard way where it's like uh, they have these like magnifying glasses for small screens instead of building a big screen. You know, it's, but uh, I like the the weirdness of the time travel. They never actually explain how it works. But it's time travel, it's theoretical. You don't need to, you know, explain that. But uh, I love the suit he wears when he goes out at the beginning, when he's uh, observing, uh, picking up insects. Uh, to me, when the film kind of doesn't do it for me is actually kind of the insane asylum, even though I do like Brad Pitt's performance. It's very manic. Uh, it's one of my favorite performances of his since uh, inter- Interview with the Vampire when he plays Lewis, how he kind of he went from kind of like pretty boy kind of like sidekick to, oh, okay, this guy actually has some acting chops, and I think he, he can be kind of a weird like Johnny Depp. He has that element to him. When uh, Bruce Willis and Madeline Stowe go on the road, that's when it kind of slows down for me. It's not as, and it's not like it's bad. It's just, it's not as interesting as the time travel element, the future, and kind of like the, kind of the wraparound element of the movie. But I enjoy the film. Uh, I don't like it as much as Time Bandits, for instance, uh, Gilliam's other time travel film, but I don't know. I think I'd recommend it for people. I think it's a, it's a solid film in an otherwise better filmography. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Eric King. I want to just tag on with you and uh, give my review at this point because I also uh, only saw it last in the theater before I watched it before this week. And uh, I do remember... I remember being weirded out. I remember thinking it was very strange, uh, and uh, but I, I remember very much liking how strange it was. Um, watching it now, I, I think it's more thoughtful than what I recalled, and I have since seen La Jetie, uh, the Chris Marker film upon which it is based, and uh, I think it's a very, very faithful expansion of La Jetie. I mean, it's doing some different things, and it's saying more things, and it's adding some narrative uh, pieces here and there, but I, I feel like uh, Gilliam really did a good job with the source material in making a feature length out of a 20, uh, what, 8 minute uh, short, 23 minute, mm-hmm. I can't recall um, the exact length of time. And uh, using some of the visual tropes, we, when we see Jose in those um, particular pair of sunglasses uh, there in the very last scene, that is uh, a direct lift from um, some imagery that we find there in La Jetie. And so I, I found that to be a lot of fun. And again, I think it's interesting. The performances are fine. Um, I do like that the science fiction is um, limited. We know that it is a future. We know that time travel is a thing, but it's also inexact and it's not explained. And suddenly Bruce Willis appears, he disappears. And I sort of like the mystery that surrounds the science fiction on that. There'll be more on that anon, I hope. Uh, but yeah, overall, um, I enjoyed my experience of the film. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what have you to say in terms of your thumbs up, thumbs down review? This film is a really interesting uh, piece, as we've already discussed at length, and we will discuss further in the show. This is an interesting companion piece to Brazil, especially since this was made after. And then there's, you know, questions of um, the quality and a lot of the thematic carryover throughout both of these. But in terms of it being an interesting sci-fi 
action film. It, it, I think it delivers on that. I did like some of my co-hosts get a little bogged down when we go road tripping. And when I did get a little bored at the very end, cause I'm like, I know where this is going. You know, it's, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's a big spoiler, but it's very obvious what it is, you know, that with the quote dream stuff that Bruce Willis has, you know, where that's going. And like, okay, just fucking take me there please i i just i right now i'm just i know where this is going just get me there and then we get there and i'm um i do have a bit of pleasant surprise but i'm like okay i could yeah that was definitely coming as well so the big revelation at the at the end of the film there but um yeah i i think that uh bruce willis and brad pitt deserve better roles than what they're currently uh given and suffering through i i feel like their careers during this time period were probably more interesting to me and and they deserve that um it it's still overall it's an unnerving film i actually ended up having a dream that was a continuation of the plot of of this movie Whoa. so yeah so the dream was you know where it's basically the end of the movie and you know the plague is gonna it's gonna happen um that's where my dream picked up and basically it was all of us like trying to escape norman oklahoma and then it's starting to snow like this big blizzard and then i had virus vials and then i had to like go and hide in this basement and then i come out six years later and everyone's like dead and stuff yeah no i mean i i mean it affected me it obviously affected my psyche in, in a real way um and that is interesting i had that dream instead of the brazil thing uh a similar dream about brazil but i think overall that this film is good it's just not in my you know top films i've ever seen okay fair enough thank you very much for that miss alexander bohan so that's what we think about the film let's take a moment now as i look upon my watch i realize it's time to play the game time That's right, dear listener, we're coming back at you with our favorite cinematic time machines. That's right, our favorite cinematic time machines, brought to you by 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys. Did you look and see the chip clips that they put on his uh, Bruce Willis's jowls for this time machine? <laughs> yes, and they wrapped him in some sort of large human condom. Yes. Uh, in order to <laughs> send him out. And slurped him <laughs> off into <laughs> the future. <laughs> we imp- he impregnated the future. <laughs> Oh, At least he used protection. Uh, well, I, that, I suppose, is something. So I'm going to go to you first, Mr. Eric King. What is your favorite cinematic time machine or machines? Machines, uh, well, I don't want to go to the basic ones like H.G. Wells' time machine. So I was actually thinking uh, I like vehicular time machines. But So you'd obviously go to the DeLorean. But I actually started thinking of one that's a little bit strange, and that's uh, the USS Bounty from Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. And how is that you take a Klingon bird of prey and how you do a time machine is you just whip it around the sun. And that's how time, time travel works. Because <laughs> if you go fast enough, you go through if time. If you go fast enough, and it kind of makes you think like in Star Trek, the Star Trek universe, how, how often uh, cataclysmic events would be averted if they just warped around the sun. But uh, how cool can, uh, how cool can uh, anything else be as a machine, then a Klingon bird of prey, because you can time travel in time and then blow stuff up. 
Excellent, excellent. Outstanding. I like that pick very much, Mr. Eric King. Mr. Caleb Masters, what are your selections? I'm sure there's going to be selections. Oh, yeah. There's still several. I can talk time travel all days, guys. Off the top of my head, all night long. Look at me all the time travel. Uh, so, firstly, I have to go with what I find have found to have been probably one of the most sound, logically speaking, time machines, which is the box from Primer. Oh, nice. You want to see a movie that tries really, really hard to lay out, lay down the rules and follow them to a T with the time travel logic? Watch Primer. And guys, uh, spoiler alert for Primer, um, there's a reason most filmmakers don't waste their time over explaining how time travel works because it wouldn't be fun. And I love Primer, it's an intellect, but it's an intellectual exercise. But for people who really want to get that finite, this is how time travel probably logically works, go check that movie out. Um, I always I also have to go with uh, the phone booth from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That nice. one's a lot, a lot of fun. Nice. And as I, you know, love Lost for all its flaws and strengths and beauty, uh, the the island is a time machine. Yeah, there's a little there's a little wheel you can turn down at the core of the island that apparently makes the time travel. I don't care. It's awesome. And then I got an epic time travel season in season five. It was wonderful. Uh, but though that would wrap my picks for favorite time machines, Dustin. Hey, Caleb, I'm moving the island. Just so you know, <laughs> you're gonna move the island. I'm gonna move the island. That was that was the best line. Oh my god! All okay. right, all right. So thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. What are your selections? Well, I do have some of those selections for best cinematic time travel machines. Uh, first of all, we're going to go with our classic TARDIS. That's time and relative dimension in space, as fr- seen in Doctor Who, which has uh, many movies and 60 bajillion years of uh, television programs. So you can experience the revelries of the Time Lord and uh, his various companions. I would also go with, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but I have seen this movie, The Hot Tub from Hot Tub Time yes. Machine, because that, that is funny. one ridiculous movie, but an interesting one. And, you know, sometimes a time machine is a hot tub, and you can't really say that you've ever seen that before. And last but not least, I'm just going to go with the pick that everyone expects from me, and that is the time turner for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> and then, obviously, all those time turners get smashed in uh, Order of the Phoenix, so we can't revive Sirius Black. Um, but, yeah, so that's uh, those are my picks for favorite cinematic time machines. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Um, I am going to uh, reiterate and uh, re-endorse Caleb's pick of the box from Primer. I do love the very, very simple time machine that is, um, even though the, the film is sort of obsessed with the logic of what happens if you go back and you keep going back and there are multiple timelines sort of swirling around one another, um, it does not explain the science, you know, really at all. They're, they're trying to teleport matter and it ends up moving through time by accident. Well, and that's the whole thing with time travel is it's never been about the science ever. It's, it's a plot device. But the problem is it's a plot device that almost inevitably will break down somewhere if you think about it too much, unless you're watching Primer. And they have thought through every possible way this could break down and have justified it somehow. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm going to name one last film, which I've recently become semi-obsessed with, which is Elaine Renee's uh, Jatem Jatem, um, which means I love you, I love you um, in English. And it is uh, a film in which a guy is sent back in time, again, sort of by auspicious you know, semi-governmental agencies, very much like 12 Monkeys. And he go, and again, it's not interested at all in the technology. He walks into something that looks like an overgrown... um, 
garlic clove meets an onion and <laughs> lays on this strange, you know, flesh couch. Um, and then he just moves around. And it's just really, really weird. It's, it's visually very, very interesting. But it doesn't make any sense that this is a piece of technology at all because it looks so strangely organic and uh, whatnot. And so the imagery itself, I think, is very, very compelling from Jatem Jatem. And the film is also compelling for other reasons. And more on that... Anon. Moving right along, guys, I think it's time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh. It's business. It's business time. That's right, dear listener, and that business is analysis, and I'm so excited to hear what my co-hosts have to say today. I'm going to go to you first, Miss Alexander Bohannon, and hear what analysis you have to bring. Terry Gilliam is an undisputed auteur of a director. As a reminder, as we've discussed on length on this program, auteurism is when you can examine an entire body of a work created by an artist, in this case, a director. Um, you can also do um, film, you can do actor art, auteurism as well, um, and you can examine the entire body of their work analytically as an entire unit. Gilliam retreads common universal themes throughout his films. Life, death, the idea of the self, the place for you within a governmental machine, consumerism and consumption. Naturally, the most in the most naturally in the most pessimistic double feature of all time, you can place 12 monkeys next to Brazil and logically conclude that they exist almost within the same universe. There are similar thematic lines that cut through both films, one of which Caleb will discuss, which is consumerism. My original argument for this analysis was that Brazil told the story of 12 Monkeys uh, better. I I think that in terms of quality and inventiveness, it it does do so. I I do appreciate the aesthetic of Brazil, and and I think it maybe tells a more powerful story. I mean, in terms of comparison, I personally find Brazil a more enjoyable film. But after some close self-reflection and monitoring, while I do find Brazil more enjoyable, it's not necessarily because Brazil is without contemplating these films subjectively. It's not necessarily because Brazil is better. Gilliam has a lot of issues with studio intervention, pacing issues, aimlessness and direction, and I say that's within both of these films. So whenever you have films that are so thematically similar, tell basically the same underlying story using different methods, why does a viewer prefer one film over the other? Why do some people like Brazil over 12 Monkeys or vice versa? This is where we get into the concept of reader response theory. And whenever we apply the basics of reader response analysis, um, we remember that uh, the we remember that the function of literature and film is meaningful and is complemented by uh, the aesthetic experience. Texts produce a plurality of meaning because readers respond differently to the same text. So any answer is not necessarily the definitive or conclusive one. Um, reading is a process of understanding dialects in which the text is a structure and that the reader then assimilates in his or her own mind. And then you're a creative participant in the process of reading rather than a passive consumer whenever contemplating reader response theory. So my impression that this film is a less, is lesser than Brazil, this, despite it being pretty generally 
similar plotted and, and structured and themed, I think I could read that through a lens of reader response. I think that the subjectiveness of reader response makes a viewer an integral part of the text. And whenever you have films like Brazil and 12 Monkeys that are within the same oeuvre of one director, it's, it can be really difficult understanding why someone prefers one of these films better than the other without using the film, the lens of reader response. That absolutely makes sense. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Alexander Bohannon. And I think that um, discussion of subjectivity with regard to uh, the uh, viewership is uh, very, very appropriate uh, for a film that's all about the subjectivity of its protagonist. So um, I think that's definitely, definitely on point, and I appreciate it very much. Uh, Mr. Eric King, what analysis do you have? When I look at 12 Monkeys, uh, I look at the the way the time travel is set up in it, that the future is set. There's no way he's not being sent back to fix time. You know, it's not like a Tom Cruise movie where it's like, I can fix time. No, it's time is, is stopped. I mean, time at this, uh, the cataclysm has happened. So he is to go back and just get information to where they can make the vaccine to save the future. Uh, I appreciate that element of the film because, I mean, because time travel <laughs> films, like, they can get really, really out of hand. You know, there's, like, you think of Terminator. It's, like, where I'm going to – John Connor's dad is from the future. <laughs> so it's, like, you think of, like, paradoxes. And so I think it avoids paradoxes very well. Um, comparing it to Brazil, I mean, Alexandra, she really nailed it on her. <laughs> so I'm just going to kind of just maybe just piggyback on some of the stuff that she said. Thanks. Um it's i think with with brazil it just they're two different films but they also have like you know a lot of similarities to them um i think with me the reason why i like brazil more i think maybe it's just aesthetically it's just better to me you know i just it's something that uh all the cylinders are rolling at the same time where 12 monkeys kind of feels sort of like it's a cross between the gilliam of old a lot of his uh, sort of uk based stuff where it's a little bit more fantastical and there's a uh, kind of like less reality to it. And with 12 monkeys, it's sort of like kind of like the Fisher King where it's like set very much in reality. It's just, you know, you have these digressions into the fantastical world and whether or not it is, um, I don't know in a person's mind or not. Yes. Yeah. I was curious. And I, obviously this is an open question for everyone. There was substantial studio intervention in Brazil um, that led us to having like five different versions of the movie. Was that the case within 12 monkeys? Did we have any studio intervention within that? I'm not that? sure. There was for the ending of the film. And I want, I have a question for you all about that here in just a moment. Okay, cool. Well, so yeah, I know this is one of the films that, uh, <clears throat> that Terry Gilliam retained final cut on. And so he got the final say on, uh, all those types of choices. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's and that's interesting to me, and then that makes me, you know, contemplate, you know, those issues of preference. If you know, he had the final say on certain things. Yeah, I mean, I think I think actually uh, the pacing, whenever pacing was brought up, I think that is actually the the weakest link of the film because w- when you have, uh, the, it's just it needed it needed at least about ten minutes cut from it because it just it just kind of dragged on and as much as i love terry gilliam uh not every director is infallible and uh sometimes they kind of uh i think maybe it was just after the the fiasco that was brazil you know having the kind of like that more of a strength of a cut uh that strength of having a final cut sort of maybe maybe got to his head a little bit uh i'm not sure i'm not in terry gilliam's head but 
I mean, it's you know, it's a, it's a solid film. I just it's it's not as it's like I don't know grand as what I remembered it to be. You know, it's like time hasn't aged it well, but it's but it, when it's strong, it is very strong, and I still enjoy it quite a bit. I think it's a fantastic film. It's just it's one of those. It's like I used to love tango and cash when i was a kid but i watch it now it's like eh, it's not so not a great of a movie but uh you know i'll watch it <laughs> that's all i have to say really oh uh, fair enough fair enough thank you very much for that mr eric king mr caleb masters what analysis do you bring sir yeah i want to talk uh, as alex alluded to here i want to talk a little bit about consumerism being used as a form of control now 12 monkeys is a story about cole going back in time to gather information about the virus but i i think while that's the plot, I think the, the, the larger issue that Gilliam really wants to address here is how consumerism and buying stuff is used to control the masses and distract them from the issues that are actually going on in the world. Uh, the key to this film comes through the mad rants of Jeffrey Goins, a, a character that I think Gilliam is giving an awful lot of credit to and a lot, an awful lot of weight to, despite the fact that he's clearly psychotic. Uh, so uh, one quote I want to read to you, one of his many quotes that are talking about this issue, but the one I want to hit on uh, says this. Uh, There's the television. It's all right there. It's all right there. Look, listen, kneel, pray. Commercials. We're not, we're not productive anymore. We don't make things anymore. It's all just automated. What are we for them? We're, we're the consumers, Jim. Yeah, okay, okay. Buy a lot of stuff, you're a good citizen. But if you don't buy a lot of stuff, if you don't, what are you then, I ask you? What? You're mentally ill. And uh, if you you know uh, listen to our show on Brazil, this is not a new idea for him, but I do feel like he hits on consumerism more specifically with this film. He goes a little more in-depth on that angle in this film than he did in Brazil. Uh, now, in this film, notice that the average person is completely oblivious to the activities surrounding Cole other than what the TV tells them. Oh, hey, there's this criminal. He kidnapped this person. And that's all the average person notices. Uh, now, once he gets he, he gets captured, uh, his ideas and life goals uh, don't conform to the average person. Why did you Why did you beat up that cop or attack that cop? Well, I'm, he was trying to he was keeping me from gathering information. His uh, you know yada yada. He sounded kind of crazy. Why did he sound kind of crazy? Well, because he wasn't an average citizen. He wasn't a partici- He was not there to participate in consumerism. He was not there to buy things. Um, so thus, he is labeled as insane and is immediately institutionalized. Now, in the institution, of course, he runs into a number of clearly disturbed individuals, but among them is Je- uh, Jeffrey, uh, who Gilliam really uses to articulate the merits of nonconformity. If you don't want to watch TV and buy the things they want you to buy, then you're crazy. And what do they do when you're crazy? You get locked up, and they drug you up so that you'll shut up. They don't want you to talk. They want to silence you because you do not fit in as part of the established order. And now, the, the film continues with this line of thought of uh, consumers and casting people out, casting out people who are different uh, by highlighting the homeless people. Many times we see lower class or or homeless people being used to articulate key points of information because apparently they're also keyed into more, they're also more in tune with what's really going on outside of this crazy machine um, that uh, that we all feed uh, buying stuff and watching the TV. Um, But they're homeless. So again, consumerists, by uh, passers by are ignoring them because they're they're an out they they don't belong they're a failure because they don't make the money to buy the things even though they know what's uh, at least in the context of this film they know what's going on uh, so the consumer consumerism is all about raising up people who who 
participate. And the more money you make, the more you can participate, the more coverage we're going to give you, the more attention we're going to give you, the more celebrity we're going to make you. Uh, the, the problem with it is, and I think Gilliam's getting at, is that the, the capitalist, consumeristic machine does not want you to think about the real world problem, uh, the real issues that are going on. It wants you to go and buy soap. It wants... <laughs> nice reference. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I thought, I think, while obviously Jeffrey's crazy, I thought that was a brilliant point to illustrate what he was trying to talk about, although germs are very real, I will say. Yes. Uh, but the idea that we invent things to sell to people, even though they don't need it, we invent them so we can sell it to them so they can make money. I can give you a feminist reading on that statement, Caleb. Did you, um, it, it's just like the whole concept of a re re gendering uh, gendering products in general just to be able to be sell more items uh, less volume of items more expensively for women because they're you know attractively packaged in a way that quote appeals instead of having you know you can buy your Barbasol um, that you can you know shave with the fact that shaving any part of your body besides your face was actually an invention by advertisers in order to sell shaving products to women is also a thing um, in inventing a need for these items. But in, in, in our modern society, even though there's this cultural acceptance around females and shaving uh, various body parts, it, you have these gendering of products in order to uh, push duplicate items because you have his and hers shower gels and shaving creams and all of these items. And, and it really is interesting how there's this development of you know, who is making the final say and who who is actually driving our societal norms and expectations and cultural values. And a lot of the time, it's the brand and the buying power. No, no, totally. And and again, I, I don't talk about my day job too much, but I do have a, a thing where I work in sales a little bit. And that's what it is. You invent things to push to people. And that way, when they start using them, they don't they don't know they want it until they already have it and then they can't not have it, right? Because a lot of times because it's socially acceptable. I didn't know I wanted 50 megabytes per second internet, but now that I, if I go back down to the lower one, I sure as heck make sure I want to have it. You, you know what I mean? You create things and who determines when we need to sell more stuff to you? Well, the company. Like you said, Alex said the brand. The, the system wants us to buy the things so that we can eventually buy the things so we can make money until we die. The, the scientists in the future represent the machine. They don't want to change the status quo. They want to send coal back to gather information. They don't want coal to go back and stop it from happening, uh, which I think is highlighting the point that they also are forwarding the machine. Ultimately, uh, to, to kind of tie it into a bow, though, the, the corporate entities, the people, the, the big brands, they do not want you to pay attention to the diseases that are outbreaking. They don't want you to pay attention to... ISIS. They don't want you to pay attention to a lot of civil rights. They don't want you to pay attention to uh, earthquakes in Oklahoma. They don't want you to pay attention to that stuff. They want you to pay attention to the fact that I'm getting, you're getting cheap gas or that you're getting the TV you want or that uh, you have, have the, the proper shaving cream and laser, uh, uh, razor for your legs. Uh, and ultimately, that is Terry Gilliam has a huge hang-up on that, and I think he's right. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you very much for that analysis, Mr. Caleb Masters. I'm going to get a little didactic here, I think, folks, and I'm going to do some teachy-teachy stuff um, because I want to talk about Giles Deleuze, um, the philosopher from France, who um, gives an interesting 
way of breaking cinema, and this film is a good exemplar for the type of break that he's trying to make. Uh, Deleuze's argument in his two big books about cinema called Cinema One and Cinema Two. Uh, you can't say he's incredibly creative uh, with his titling <laughs> of films, uh, or rather books, um, and, and whatnot. But he's a very, very creative writer himself in that he invents terms and terminologies and uh, sort of creates his own language games. If you go out and buy some Deleuze after listening to this podcast, um, I'm going to tell you this and warn you this and thusly that it's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. Um, Deleuze is, again, he's playing uh, sort of a language game, and he's not really playing the game with anybody else. Uh, to, a, to a small extent, Henry Bergson, but he's doing his own thing. And what, what Deleuze does is he says that there is an epic of cinematic uh, sort of production that is the time image. Or excuse me, first the movement image. Uh, the movement image is a cinema that is based on action causality, uh, sort of basic cause and effect sort of uh, filmmaking, that the spaces that are used in those kinds of films are going to indicate exactly the kinds of actions that are going to happen, that the spaces themselves are a source of causality. So when you see, uh, you know, the sheriff... Uh, one end of a dusty street, and you see the bad guy in the black hat at the, at the other end of the street in the western, you know what's about to happen. Um, there's going to be a quick draw contest between the two of them. And that all of those actions are motivated, again, very, very causally. Um, and then, it, rather than breaking film as it often is broken by historians, which is between uh, the period of early cinema, when cinema was invented in 1896, until about uh, 1928, at the invention of sound and the uh, intervention of sound cinema. So we have like a silent era, and then we have a talking era. That sort of begins, and that is typically the way in which historians break film. Deleuze does something different. He breaks it at vaguely a pre-war versus post-war period based on this movement image that is uh, the characteristic of most cinema up until that point versus the time image uh, with the onset of Italian neorealism uh, and the French New Wave, which is a cinema that is much more preoccupied with the uh, human intellect and psyche and sort of the uh, the architecture of the mind and that films that sort of rest and relax in those periods now he does you know give a caveat to certain outliers ozu who was producing films before the war and uh, also you know some of the uh, avant-gardists in france and germany and he sort of nods to that but he sees them again as sort of aberrations and outliers uh what ends up happening with film it um for as far as Deleuze is concerned is this uh, immediate sort of move into imagery that uh, that again is about the human psyche less than it is about the events you know the the, the pure causality and it's less about the space uh, he talks a lot about he creates a term called any space whatever's which um, he also creates, you know, words like op sign and som sign and un sign and, and whatnot that are sort of these weird sort of Latin interjections. But it, rather than doing the Latin strangeness, he instead opts for any space whatevers, which which is this weird hyphenated phrase. And I, I always found that to be very, very odd and very, very bizarre. But that being said, when it occurs, he is talking about how the space does not determine the action. Um, there's a moment in 12 Monkeys when we see exactly this sort of thing happen. And Eric re um, referred to it earlier, in which uh, Bruce Willis is uh, sort of randomly time-traveled back to uh, the, 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 the front of World War One, yeah. And uh, the, the, the space itself is sort of, uh, you know, the time machine is having a poor job of, moving space uh, in, in that way. And what I want to say is this. 
is that what this film does is give an idea of the architecture of the mind in the way that memory insists upon us. Um, that memory folk functions, as, as Deleuze will say, as a virtual reality. And uh, for, for Deleuze, there is the real, there is the actuality of our events and the, and the things that we experience, but there's also a virtuality that we all experience, and memory is the primary example of that. Memory does not exist Right, the events do not exist any longer, but they continue to insist. And what he says is they crystallize and they cause us to act in a certain way. He considers that our, our existence in the present that there are these moments that are called peaks of the present, where we're very, very focused and we're very, very sort of um, able to receive and perceive what's going on. And then there are these sheets of the past. And think of a room full of sheets as like small dividers. And these certain moments of our past continue to insist upon our present, and they begin to infect and affect the way that we uh, act in our lives. And what Bruce Willis endures and experiences throughout this film is the insistence of a past um, whilst also traveling through time. The insistence of the past, this childhood memory of what turns out to be seeing himself uh, gunned down in an airport, which is the um, the primary scene of La Chatee that's being picked up. Um, and La Chatee does a similar sort of thing. And so this film marks a different kind of cinema. We can see now that there are both kinds of movies continuing to work now uh, convergently after that post-war period, where there are these movies that are very much uh, action-oriented, cause and effect-oriented. I'm looking at you fast and furious uh, you know, and, and you know, all those kind of, I mean, we could name any number. We could go Bruce Willis, in fact. Let's go Die Hard for just a second. It's it's purely sort of causal. It is movement image cinema. But there's also this thing that's happening that happens after the post-war in which we begin to experience time image cinema. And, uh, law, um, excuse me, 12 Monkeys is a primary example of that. And so I just want to give you a divergent, if I can be divergent for just a moment, a divergent reading of uh, film history and how Deleuze sort of situates that, uh, that, that history and where 12 Monkeys plays into that history. Now, enough said about that. I do have a question for my dear co-hosts around the table. I want to talk a little bit about the ending. We did say we were going to do spoilerific spoilerages, and we have sort of failed to spoil what happens. Bruce Willis dies um, at the end of the movie. He witnesses himself uh, as a chi- child. Bruce Willis sees his adult self get shot, right, in and, the airport, and that does happen again fatalistically. But then um, our character does manage to get on the plane, and he is seated next to the oldest woman of the uh, scientific board that sends him. Now, my question is this: I mean, it's about thirty years, roughly, in the future. I'm assuming she would have aged, so I'm assuming that's not present day woman. No, 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 no. She's dev- I, okay. Again, this is my my reading. That's is what I think that too. she is almost certainly time travel back to stop him there and they got enough clues to do it or not maybe not again not, maybe not stop him but get the samples from him so they can find a cure because that seems to be their their uh, their motive from the mm-hmm. get-go and the reason i say that is because there's a line she said he he asks what she does and she says i work in insurance yes she does yeah uh, which which is what sort of threw me off like she, is she telling the truth again is this sort of past version of her or is it present ver- ver- version of her in which bruce willis has managed to intervene and save the day what do you got what do, what do you two think Oh, you go ahead. Oh, I'm just I'm just contemplating because I did pick up on the per, the obvious age thing, and I was like, that wouldn't make sense if she was really there. Yeah, and so that contemplating it with the lens that she is, you know, sent to stop him. Uh, I do. I I really I agree with that reading. Um, 
And I think that it it's kind of, it, I think what also gives you pause is because you, you see Brazil and then you have the ending of Brazil, which, um, you know, not the love conquers all ending the real quote ending where, um, well, that's also a spoiler, but you, you know, it's a similar con concept of an ending. Um, okay. So I'm just going to say it. He, he totally doesn't, you know, make it out and he snuffs it. And, um, I, I think that these two endings are, I think in, I, th yeah, I think that it works. And I think that that's probably, that has to be what's happening because the age thing, it doesn't make any sense any other way. Yeah. I think uh, she is from the future. Yeah. I think she's there to grab the samples because right. they figured out who was the one that let out the virus to begin with. And they thought it was like the army of the 12 monkeys turned out. It wasn't, uh, I think like they don't stop the virus because I believe at the security checkpoint, yeah, the uh, virus, David Morris opens a, it. That's game over. Yeah, Every, everybody dies. Everyone's gonna and die. insurance is like, yeah, it's like you're not saving our present day, but she's ensuring the future of humanity. Yes. So, you know. And, and again, my understanding, again, uh, my reading was from the get-go, they were never actually trying to stop it. No, they, they were can't trying stop to observe, it. Right, exactly. They were trying to observe it so they could take the information they learned to make a better future starting from the, the future. Well, it also, it seems like it's really interesting because uh, whenever they send uh, Bruce Willis back in time, they're always screwing it up. And I guess they got it, the time travel down pat now because she's like right on the plane. What? And, then Jose, and then Jose shows up like literally seconds after he makes the phone call. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's kind of my reading as well. But I know there is there has been some debate about that. It's and ambiguous. I, thought, I yeah. thought we would at least um, ring in with our good trash um, votes on the issue. Um, let's move on, though, to the conclusion part of our analysis in which we must render a verdict. Whether this film goes on the shelf or in the trash, I ask you first, Mr. Caleb Masters, shelf for trash, and then suggest to us your else's or instead's based on that verdict. Oh, well, it's on my shelf. I bought this one many years ago when I was in college and still had a really deep fondness for the film. And I still do. I still really like it. And it, it, it belongs on my shelf as a time travel enthusiast, uh, as a Gilliam fan, and as a Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt fan. Like All those things are working here, so it, just, it belongs on my shelf. But I, I really don't think, unless you really are fit in any of those categories where you're a big fan of any of those things, I don't think this really is a shelfer for you. It's a it's a good movie. I think you should watch it. But is it does it belong in the in the film canon, so to speak? Uh, I like how Eric called it like a minor classic. I, I think it kind of fits in that category where it's like your B-lister classic. It's like, yeah, it's really good. It's really interesting. But, you know, I don't think you have to own it. Uh, as a even as a even as a, a film enthusiast, but not a enthusiast of any of those other things. So uh, else though, I would also recommend to go along with my reading another Brad Pitt film, Fight Club. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I'm not here to to hound Dalton uh, to tease him with the Fincher rule, but I do really think that's a, it's a fitting reading uh, where they go really, really, really in depth on the consumerist. Uh, the, the damage that consumerism is having wreaking on society, particularly uh, on uh, young men. Uh, I Brazil obvious pairing uh, at some point. Uh, if you want to see Bruce Willis in another really great time travel film, absolutely go check out Looper. Mm -hmm. That movie is a lot more fun than this movie, and in a lot of ways, it's a lot more interesting. Um, but I think they're both really, really great. And lastly, we're in an era of superheroes, people. Superheroes all the time. It's almost, it's really, really dang wearing on me, actually. There's way too much superhero stuff. But if I'm going to recommend a superhero movie on the Good Trash genre cast, I'm going to recommend the time travel superhero movie, my, one of my favorites of all time, X-Men Days of Future Past. Does that time travel make sense? Absolutely not. It, may, it was, uh, they actually got the inspiration from some James Cameron. I don't care. 
It's a really freaking great movie uh, that uh, has a lot of fun with the time travel uh, scenario. Uh, but those will be my picks, Dustin. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Caleb Masters. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what do you say? Shelf or trash? Else? Or instead? Guys, I'm I'm not afraid to say trash on this. I I I I'm sorry if you I Gilliam is cool. He's a great director and he has a lot of really interesting things to say, but I just don't think that this really belongs on your shelf unless you are a Gilliam completionist, unless you really really I don't even think that if you really like Brazil you should own this movie because I would rather watch Brazil. Yeah, just, just own Brazil, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um obviously I'm going to recommend uh, Brazil, all, that's just very obvious. I also had Fight Club on my list because Tyler Durden, could, the narrator slash Tyler Durden could be um, Brad Pitt's character in that movie. It just It's really fascinating to see. Um, I know we've talked before about films in the mid to late 90s capping with 99 and Fight Club that there's like this really interesting questioning of identity and personhood in the this era. And then Brad Pitt playing all of these really fascinating roles that deal with a lot of this stuff. I don't think that's just a coincidence. Uh, and I would also then just building up on the questioning of being plugged in consumerism and being distracted by, um, you know, the man like through Caleb's reading, I would recommend the Wachowskis, the matrix and all of the subsequent uh, films. And I also really like the science fiction aesthetic in that universe. It also kind of has like that, weird plug it up kind of like the gritty technology like hardwired technology yeah the dirty kind of dirty, dirty yeah, yeah mm-hmm. like that aesthetic is really interesting like to me. that plug that goes in the back of your neck might yeah. have AIDS yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. AIDS plugs <laughs> whoa alrighty well, there you go. Thank you very much for that, Miss Alexandra Bohannon. That went a weird way uh, for just a moment there. Mr. Eric King, what do you say? Uh, shelf for trash, else, or instead? Um, as a Gilliam fan, I would shelf it, even though it turns out it's not on my shelf. Uh, I had to rent it off of Amazon. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, I thought I owned it. I think I have it on VHS somewhere. Um, but I would try. I'm kind of in between uh, Caleb and Alex. It's uh, I'll shelf it if you're a Gilliam completist trash it uh, if you're not i mean it's it's not for it's not for your your typical film fan uh not everyone's definitely not everyone's cup of tea by any means oh no and actually to be but be perfectly honest it's kind of avant-garde in certain aspects and i'm surprised it even got a theatrical release uh for my else's uh i actually have a couple of films uh from 1985 that I'm, uh, they're cheesy, but I'm big fans of uh, My Science Project, which starts Dennis Hopper as a science teacher who tells his one of his students that he needs a dynamite science project to pass uh, senior uh, finals, where this kid goes to a Air Force graveyard and finds a time-space warp engine for a UFO, and hijinks ensues. And then uh, an interesting uh, film by Charles Band, Trancers with Tim Thomerson, uh, not a good movie either, but fun to watch. It which deals with uh, it deals with genetic time travel, where the only way you can time travel is through your lineage, through your ancestors. Assassin's Creed style, then? Huh? Yeah, it kind of is it, Assassin's Creed adjacent. Yeah, and um, it's it's a really cheesy film, but it's not too bad. Yes. Yeah, that kind of concept reminds me. Uh, I almost said this for an Elser instead. A Blackadder, the same kind of concept yes, that yes. you because you do have like the fifth season movie where they go in a time machine and visit their iterations of mm-hmm. past and future selves and they how they play the same character over and over again. Oh yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean there are two uh, transfers you can watch on Netflix right now. I'm not sure about 
my science project. And an actual good one, uh, the 2007 Spanish-language film Time Crimes by Nacho Vigalondo, which uh, deals with a man that's being tormented by a masked bandage figure that may or may not be him. And that actually deals with a lot with paradoxes and... That is a very smart, wacky film. I am so into that movie. I'm, I'm adding it to my queue right now. I think now. it's on there. I, I mean, check it out. I highly recommend that one. So, All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Eric King. Um, brother from another mother. That's what I want to say to you right now. Thank so, you. Um, Excellent, excellent. I am not going to say shelf. I am neither going to say trash if you already own it, but don't bother buying it if you don't. Um, it's definitely worth catching if it's on TV, if it's on your premium cable channels, if you find it streaming on one of the various streaming platforms, then by all means go ahead and watch it and uh, whatnot. Seek it out on that sort of uh, more passive level, not on the active level of going to your local brick-and-mortar store or Amazon.com and ordering it. I wouldn't suggest that at all. Um, but I would say that it's definitely worth watching. In addition, you should watch Jatem Jatem, which I've already mentioned, uh, which does some similar sorts of things. Obviously, La Jetee, the original Chris Marker film. Um, we got to remember that David Peoples, the screenwriter for this film, was also the screenwriter for Blade Runner. And so that's definitely worth catching and watching and uh, you know a good use of your time. And finally, take a look at Primer. Um, did I say Primer? I didn't say it already. Did oh, I? that was in our yeah our game. Okay, it's in our game. Good. I, just, I felt like I might have mentioned it. Primer does some very, very interesting things along those lines as well. And my last selection, I think I said finally, but I didn't mean it. I was kidding. Um, my last selection is Uncle Boonmy, Who Can Recall His Past Lives, which is another film that's similarly um, it ensconced in memory and uh, sort of the way, again, that those sheets of the past and peaks of the present can sort of impinge upon one another. And it's definitely, definitely a great film and well worth your time. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 2012, if I recall. And so it's it's a great movie from Thailand, and uh, it's also beautifully, wonderfully weird. And there's a sex scene with a catfish. What more do you want? I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> it does happen. I mean, whatever floats your boat. <laughs> there's all kinds of implications there. But we're going to move right along after all of that. Let's talk about where we can be found via those magical means that we all know as social media. Alex, you know anything about that stuff? You can find us at facebook.com forward slash good trash media. You can find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. And last but not least, you can find all of our programs at goodtrashmedia.com. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Eric King, guest host of the day, tell us about what you're doing and where it can be found on the interwebs. Uh, me personally, you can find me at Uncanny Karloff on Twitter. Uh, look me up at Eric King on Facebook. Uh, I do a podcast with uh, Patrick Crane we just started called Cinema Curio, where we take two films that uh, usually are either kind of B-side films from a famous director, uh, Forgotten Gems, or kind of like esoteric classics. So uh, we do that about bi-weekly. Uh, you can find us there at uh, cinemacurio.podbean.com. I feel like we should have a crossover episode. I feel like this is the we could be like the Marvel Cinematic it's, Universe. It's the, Destiny. The well, Avengers. I, I think after uh, podcasting. after um <laughs> after uh was it the, our little discussion we had on Twitter uh concerning uh Kenneth Anger films. I think yeah. that that's coming down to it. I think get some Lucifer rising in there. Uh, and uh, you can uh, check out the OKC Film Club at, on Twitter at OKC Film Club and Facebook. And uh, this uh, next Tuesday, uh, the first Tuesday of uh, May, uh, we're doing a John Carpenter film from 1981 that uh, we can't actually say what it is because we got dinged in the past by recommending a Spielberg film, Duel, and we almost got sued for it. Uh, but uh, it deals with a 
city that used to be a prison. So does the the does the the protagonist wear an eye patch of sorts? I can neither confirm or deny, but you're really a, close. Does he have a video game character based on him from the nineties? Uh, Metal Gear. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Yes, uh, indeed. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. I mean, you guys are great. You are great yourself, Mr. Eric King. We are so glad that you are here, and we're so glad to be having conversation with people about movies because that's what makes watching the movies so worthwhile. But before we get into that lastly and concluding plug that I always say, we need to talk about next week's show, and I'm actually going to turn this over to Mr. Caleb Masters to announce what we're doing for the next big event here at the Good Trash Media Network. Yeah, so next week, guys, uh, the patrons have spoken, and this week, and this month's patron is Austin, none other than Austin Lucari, a really, really good close friends, friend of mine, and we're going to be watching a film that he's literally been telling me for years. I'm like, he's like, Caleb, you have to watch this, you have to watch this, and finally, I have no choice because he met the minimum requirements to pick a movie, uh, and he decided to choose Django, the night, the original 1966 Django, not to be confused with Django Unchained. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. If you, if we have any Spaghetti Western fans out there, this is going to be one show you're not going to want to miss. I can attest. I just watched it last month for the first time. It is spectacular. Oh, great. I'm so excited. I'm a big fan of the Spaghetti Western. You may or may not see something about that um, coming forward on iProtein in my articles, but yes, I'm excited. I just like spaghetti. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <We should laughs> that was spag- so dumb. We should eat spaghetti while watching <laughs> Oh, my God. Caleb, make it happen. Oh, I'll bring the sauce. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's entirely appropriate. So there you go, dear listener. It's all about the conversation because that's what makes watching the movies so worthwhile. It's so much more than just 90 minutes and a bucket of popcorn. It's about talking with people you care about, about the things that really, really matter. That's what cinema does for us. So do that. Watch a movie, and we'll see you all next time. The Good Trash Genre Cast is produced and edited by Arthur Gordon. Direction by Dustin Sells. Social media by Alexandro Bohannon, Caleb Masters, and Dalton Stewart. Our intro and outro is Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovebox. We are also proud to feature music from Deer Tick this week on the program. For more information on this episode of the Good Trash Genrecast, as well as the rest of the Good Trash Media family, please visit goodtrashmedia.com.